You're listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2212 South Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. I'm Bethany. I'm Bethany. I am a cell leader here um, at Circle of Hope as well as a compassion team leader. And I'm excited to uh, be with you tonight. So um, we've been spending a lot of time this season delving into the radical gospel of the marginalized. And of course, if somebody's marginalized, they're, they're also the oppressed. So I'm going to try to do a few different things throughout my talk. If it feels a bit ambitious, I'm an ambitious person, so it is what it is. Um, But bear with me in this 20 minutes, and we'll have some time after the talk back uh, to talk some more about things. So I want to explore the concept of marginalization and exactly um, what it is and where we run into it, and then go into talking about God's response to marginalization, specifically by looking at the story of Esther, her story, and how there's this kind of strangely blurred line between identity politics and what I've dubbed um, the identity gospel or the good news for those who are marginalized and having the courage to speak that gospel truth to power in really uncomfortable spaces and then discuss our response as a church in ways in which we can continue to respond. Ambitious, but we're in this together. This is community, so... And I'm a little bit nervous, so if you hear my voice shaking, will you pray for me? If you hear that, that'll make me feel better. Um, so I think one of the first questions that we need to ask is, what is what does it mean to be marginalized? Um, so that sort of feels like, for me, marginalization, one, I picture it as a piece of paper and somebody on the inside of the marginalized, like, hey, let me out on the margin lines. Um, but it, it's always felt like this really big word with really big assumptions behind it, and I'm not really into um, assuming everybody knows what it means. So marginalization is this sort of social exclusion. Um, it's also known as social marginalization. It's the social disadvantage and relegation to the fringes of a society. So essentially, people who are within a society Um, decide based on socioeconomic status, that basically means how much money you have, Um, race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, and so on, who belongs at the top of that society and who's relegated to the bottom. So we see marginalization in our society all the time. It shows up in really subtle and nuanced ways. Um, I also think it's really funny the way, like, it's not funny. It's kind of bullying. But for me, the way it showed up when I was a kid was really weird. So I went to this church, and in Sunday school, if you were a scribbler, which means you couldn't draw within the lines, you were ostracized by the other kids. And I can remember flipping my paper over and scribbling like I needed a hit of scribbling or something, and then like flipping it back over and drawing within the lines. So we see it in those really weird ways, those nuanced ways, and we also see it in really big ways. It kind of dictates where we live. Philadelphia is an extremely segregated city. 
Um, it dictates the language that we use based on our educations. It um, dictates our education, and sometimes it even dictates the way we worship as Jesus followers. So we see it reflected in the need for the movement for black lives, bail reform and criminal justice reform, the fight for trans rights, the fight for gender equality, and against sexual assault. In my free time, I like to think of myself as kind of a community organizer, freedom, visionary. I like big words. Um, and I'm always thinking about the marginalized and wrestling with how to stand up for those that I love and myself. It's oftentimes an isolating quagmire to be in, but even more often, I have to remind myself that God finds us in the midst of these struggles. So before I get into the story of Esther, I wanna help us focus in and kind of set our, our mind state um, for how I want us to view this story. Um, I'm gonna introduce you to James Cone. It's probably not an introduction for most of you. Um, he is a black liberation theologian and he's discussing basically how to view the verses from the bottom or the disadvantage. Now you come to this reading the scriptures, the same scriptures that the dominant white church read. How can people read Holy Scriptures so differently? How do you read the scriptures? I read the scripture from the bottom. That is, I read the scriptures from the vantage point of the weak, the poor, and the helpless. I think that's the dominant theme in the scripture. I think you see that in Amos and the other prophets. I think you see that in the Exodus, that symbol. I think you see that in the story of Jesus' life and certainly in the cross. I think you have to read the scripture through the eyes of those who are marginal, weak, helpless in this society. But I don't, everybody doesn't read it that way. And the people who don't read it that way are usually the people who are already on top. So as we're reading the story of Esther, keep James Cone's uh, wise words in your mind. Um, so a few weeks before Rachel had asked me to do this week's message, I had actually already been thinking about Esther and how like dope of a woman she was. Um, specifically, Vashti, I had been thinking a lot about her. Um, the book of Esther is about 10 chapters long, so we're not going to be able to read that together tonight. I know you guys like three-hour-long church services, but not tonight. So what I'm going to do is give you a bit of a summary of the story, and then we'll focus in on chapter four of Esther. That's going to be my focus. Um, so there's two cool things to keep in mind about Esther. Uh, the first being that it's one of two books of the Bible that are named after a woman. Um, the other being Ruth. And the, the second thing that I never noticed in all the years that I've been reading Esther, the, God is never mentioned in it once, not by name. Um, so that's just two little cool facts that I looked up in my study Bible. I wrote a joke, and now I feel weird reading it. Do you want me to give you? Okay. So now I have to say that back part again. So God's never mentioned, act like you didn't hear this. So God's never mentioned not once in the Bible. So if I was at like my church that I grew up going to or one of my cousin's Pentecostal churches, I would say, uh, you might never need to say his name, but he shows up right on time. Okay. There you go. That's, that's, thank you. Thank you. 
That's what I get for writing jokes. Um, so the story starts with King Xerxes of Susa, which I believe is the Persian Empire. Um, he's throwing this huge banquet with all of his friends, as Victoria explained to us. And at the same time that he's throwing his banquet, his queen Vashti is also throwing a huge banquet for her friends. Um, I guess after a few days of partying, King Xerxes gets the bright idea to ask Vashti to come down and show her off. And my favorite part of this story is the fact that Vashti hits him with a strong, nah, not out, not coming down there. Um, and unfortunately, he gets really flustered, he gets really angry with her, and he kicks her out of the palace. Um, so as soon as he kicks her out of the palace, no more than like a day or so later, he realizes he needs a new queen. So he puts the word out in the kingdom that he's looking for a new queen. So lots of young single women dress up in their best garb, fancy up their faces, they visit Sephora or Mac, and they come and they present themselves to the king. So Esther, who was being raised by her cousin Mordecai, also dressed herself up and presented her to the king, presented herself to the king as well. Um, she was being raised by her cousin Mordecai, as I said, and Mordecai advised that she not reveal her Jewish heritage to the king. As soon as the king saw Esther, he immediately fell in love with her and chose her as his queen. Around the same time that she's appointed queen, her cousin Mordecai finds favor with the king. Um, but he then gets into a bit of a tiff with the king's right-hand man, Haman, and because of their beef, uh, Haman asked the king to put a decree out stating that all of the Jewish people in the city will be slaughtered on an upcoming day. And as soon as the Jewish people hear about the decree, uh, they all go into mourning. So let's look a little bit closer at Esther 4. This is a beautiful picture of Esther that I found. It's a mosaic. So if we could split up reading, it's three different slides, if we could all or if some of us take a turn reading it, I'd really appreciate that. When Mordecai learned what had been done, he ripped his clothes to shreds and put on sackcloth. Then he went out in the streets of the city, crying out in loud and bitter cries. He came only as far as the king's street, where no one dressed in sackcloth was allowed to enter the king's As the king's order was posted in every province, there was loud lament among the Jews, fasting, weeping, whatever. And most of them stretched out on the back of Esther's maid and eunuch came and told her, the queen was done. She sent fresh clothes to Mordecai so he could take off the sackcloth so he wouldn't accept them. Esther called her Hatha, one of the royal eunuchs whom the king had decided to wait on her, and told him to go to Mordecai and get the full story of what happened. So Hatha went to Mordecai in the town square and said to him, Mordecai told him everything that had happened. He also told him the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to deposit in the royal bank to finance the massacre. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the bulletin that had been posted to Susa ordering the massacre so he could show it to Esther when he reported back the instructions to the king and the Jews and gave them to these false people. Asset came back and told Esther everything Mordecai had said. Esther talked it over with Asset and then sent him back to Mordecai with this message. Everyone who works for the king here and even the people out in the provinces knows that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited to death. 
The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter, then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. When Hathak told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai sent her this message. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one who who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive from the Jews, for the Jews from someplace else. But you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made clean for just a time, such a time as this. Go and get all the things you need to eat again. Fast point. Don't eat poison for three days, either day or night. I and my maid will fast with you. If you will do this, I'll just be able to eat another provision. If I die, I die. When the time left, I'll carry out my provision. Thanks. So Esther then goes to the king unannounced, and this is a super condensed version of Esther, just to remind you. I suggest that everybody go and check it out. It's a really cool story. Um, so Esther then goes to the king unannounced, which is frowned upon, as was mentioned at the beginning of the story, and says, if I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it pleases the king, give me my life and give my people their lives. The king then heeds to Esther's request violently rids his kingdom of Haman and puts Mordecai in his place. I want to focus on Esther's courage and charge to speak truth to power, especially in spaces of marginalization. It's a really scary experience to have to do that. I imagine that she had a bunch of reservations before she went to the king. What if the king banishes her like he did Vashti? What if he disagrees with her or worse, also puts her to death? There are so many what-ifs so often in situations in which we must speak truth to power, especially as the marginalized ourselves. But God is always caring for us in those really uncomfortable spaces where we seem to be taking up undeserved space, where we're too ethnic, too female, too gay, fat, or poor to belong. God meets us there for times like today where marginalization runs unabashed in our society, and it's exhausting. I've found myself really struggling with the concept of identity politics in the gospel lately. I've been wondering a lot if I'm too self-absorbed in my understanding of the scriptures. But throughout the gospel, I couldn't help but notice that we always see God align himself with the most marginalized and oppressed in the same way that we see God sort of ordained Esther um, to take on the burden of her people in this story. I've noticed that time and again, God offers his goodness to those who have, whom have been discarded and disregarded by systems and people. God is reminding them that the gospel is especially sweet for them. And this is throughout the Bible. So I'm going to give you a few verses where we see this distinctly, but it's in more than these three verses. Um, in Deuteronomy 10:18, it says he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien, or in our times we would say undocumented worker, by giving him food and clothing. In Proverbs 14:31, it says, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. 
And in James 5, 4 through 6, it says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of the slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And that sounds like the fight for fair wages. So as I've been reading the scripture, I'm realizing more that we're not choosing political sides um, or identities, but rather reaffirming the gospel's identity. And that is that the marginalized and oppressed are especially loved by God, and we are charged to show the compassionate face of Jesus to them. And I'd even, take, I'd even say we need to take it a step further, or I'm finding myself taking it a step further, by being led by the marginalized. Who better to speak of their experience and lead in the charge of their experience than those who, who, than those who are in the midst of that experience? Who better to advocate for the Jews other than Esther for such a time as this? For such a time as October 21st, 2018, when people are alone and isolated. And what a time it is now to show the face of Jesus through our compassionate work and through the leadership of those that are marginalized. And I think it's really easy to theorize a loving response to today's marginalization. And theorizing is a really good start, so you need to be thinking, you need to be reading about it. But I think as a church, we can encourage each other and equip each other with the tools necessary to live out these scriptures. And I think we're doing that every day here as a circle of hope, and we're called to continue doing that. Um, so originally I was supposed to have cards under your chairs, but we had to switch things up. Um, so there are two pieces of paper over here on this table over here. Um, one piece of paper is labeled no, and the other paper, paper is labeled yes. Um, so as I finish up the, the talk that I'm giving, I want you to be thinking of some things in our society, some marginalization that we're saying no to as a church, whether it's through our mission teams, whether it's through our compassion teams, whether it's through our goal of 100 get-togethers, maybe we're saying no to loneliness. Think of that, and as you feel led, maybe while I'm talking, maybe while, um, what do we call it here? We don't call it a praise team. The band, that's what we call it. Um, maybe as they're playing, you wanna write some things uh, that you're saying no to. And then also we wanna think about, I, I recently went to a workshop um, about community accountability, and the workshop leader said, you can't break a habit or break an addiction, you replace it with something that's healthy. So as we're thinking of the things that we're saying no to, we wanna replace it with things that we're saying yes to. So think about the things that you wanna say yes to throughout the next year as well. Um, so our church has said yes to so many wonderful things this year. Um, through the work of our compassion team, Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter, We've donated nearly $10,000 to the Philadelphia Community Bell Fund. That's us down there and me in the center with my eyes closed. That's a lot of money. And we've done that through so many different avenues. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Philadelphia Community Bell Fund, 
It's a grassroots organization that responds to the injustice of, cash, of the cash bail system that continues to perpetuate the economic and racial disparities in our city. And we also advocate for the end of the cash bail system, as well as provide bail for those who are unable to currently um, afford their bail. And we're trying to raise more money by hosting our second annual Turn Up to Bail Out Music Festival. So if you haven't gotten a ticket yet, get it. <laughs> there should have been like a ding, ding. Um, and we organize around the immigrant community, um, led by Mary Buker and Bell Alvarez. Uh, they lead Solidarity Beyond Borders. Um, and they're leading us in actions and educational opportunities concerning immigration. We also have a Spanish-speaking cell that's led by Pedro Soto. Um, we support those struggling with mental illness and those that just want to be mentally well by subsidizing the cost for counseling at Circle Counseling, and that's led by Gwen White. And we have two new teams that are ready to form, or they might actually be formed, um, in support of the current opioid crisis, and another team supporting foster parents um, along with the children that they care for. Uh, we also have a church goal of getting all covenant members to get involved in some sort of compassionate work. I'm on the Compassion Corps team, so if you're interested in getting involved in any of these things or the other 16 teams that we have, you can talk to me after the service. I'm proud to see that we're taking, um, that we're taking the marginalized seriously and that it's much bigger for us than just identity politics. It's our identity as Jesus followers. The gospel speaks to ours and the marginalized identities every day in every single way. So I'm not asking you to align yourselves with a political party. I don't really think that's very healthy. I don't think that's what the gospel is asking us to do. Okay, I wasn't ready. <laughs> Thought I was in my charismatic church again. Hallelujah. I'm not asking you to align yourselves with a political party, but what I am asking is that you align yourselves with our loving and gracious God. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.